Morning, church. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. You, the, the one true God, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that we can come to you. We do so boldly because of the sufficiency of his sacrifice on our behalf. And in his name we pray that as we open your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us by helping us to understand your word. We pray that we would not only understand it, but that we would love it, that we would submit to it, that we would, as we leave this place, walk in conformity with it, that you might be glorified and that your name might be spread throughout this earth. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. All roads lead to Rome. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Pick your poison. Six of one, half dozen of another. These are all different ways of saying that there are things in life about which there are many ways to get where you want to go. And that's true. There are some things in this life about which you can go about that task any number of ways. There, there may be many different ways of, of baking a cake. I wouldn't know, but I've heard that's the case. There may be many different ways of creating an online calendar. There may be many different ways of driving from Cincinnati to San Francisco. But there are other things, and they they tend to be more serious matters, matters of life and death. Things about which there really is only one way. If you are scuba diving and you want to ascend from the ocean floor to the surface, there is one way to do it, and that is slow and steady. If you shoot to the surface, you will die. If you want to fly an airplane, you have to observe the laws of aerodynamics. You cannot say as you, as you get into that cockpit, I'm, I'm aware of the laws of aerodynamics, but I'm going to go another way. How much more should it be the case regarding eternal matters of life and death? And yet, regarding eternal matters of life and death, People, especially in our culture, are all too quick to say, all roads lead to Rome. Our text this morning will illustrate the truth. All roads do not lead to God. There is one. And we'll be moved to consider not only what that means for our own approach to God, but also how it should inform our conduct as we live lives as a kingdom of disciple-making priests. 
You'll remember, perhaps, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Leviticus. You may remember where chapter 9 fit into that grand storyline. Of course, we're in chapter 10 now. Let's think back to chapter 9. Where did we find ourselves in the storyline in chapter 9? God, God has chosen the people of Israel, wants to live in their midst. And yet at the end of the book of Exodus, the people have they've built the tabernacle, this tent in which God would dwell. And he has, he has filled this, this tabernacle with His glory, but no one can go inside. Moses is left communicating with God from outside the tent. God is holy. Man is not. It's dangerous for man to be in God's presence. And so, no one can go into that tent. Leviticus begins to answer that problem. And so, the sacrifices that we saw beginning in chapters 1-7, through outline how man may approach and abide with God. And when we got to chapter 8, we found the consecration of the priests who would offer those sacrifices. And in chapter 9, we saw Aaron acting as the newly appointed high priest. He was offering those sacrifices first for himself and then for the people. And then toward the end of chapter 9, Aaron and Moses go inside the tabernacle. And they meet with God. And then they emerge from the tabernacle. And they bless the people. And the glory of God appeared to His people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed those offerings that they had had offered signaling His welcoming them into His fellowship. And how did they react? At the end of chapter 9, we found them shouting for joy and falling on their faces. And Why did they do that? It's because everything that God had prescribed, it works. They found that everything that He had given, all of the sacrifices and the tabernacle, the priesthood, it all works. The appropriate sacrifices offered by a qualified priesthood, it results in man's ability to encounter the glory of God and not die. It's wonderful. God has welcomed them into His presence. It's wonderful news. And it's helpful to put that scene in the context of the whole Bible up to that point. Leviticus chapter 9 represents, in a sense, a great relief because it appears... That what man had lost in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 has been reclaimed in some sense. No no wonder the people rejoice. Now, the narrative of chapters 8 and 9, they showed this rhythmic pattern of the way of approach to God. So we saw in the text, do this, and the people do it, and that happens over and over. Instruction following of the instructions, and and that happens over and over. This was done or that was done. And then we're given this this refrain over and over, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Or, just as Moses had commanded it, because Moses is the mouthpiece of God. And so we find that happening over and over. Command, obedience, and then everything works out perfectly. I'd invite you, having turned to Leviticus chapter 10, to stand with me now, and we'll read chapter 10, and we'll see, does that pattern progress? 
Obedience or command, obedience, and everything works out fine. Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offering and eat it unleavened beside the altar for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the, but the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your son's due from the sacrifice of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat piece to wave for the wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. You may be seated.
Now there is a lot to think about, of course, a lot of questions raised by this text. But let's just begin with that pattern established in chapters 8 and 9. Command is given, command is obeyed, and, and people are able to approach God's presence safely. That obviously is broken here. Nadab and Abihu, they do their own thing. A lot of people have speculated about what exactly they did wrong. What about this fire was unauthorized as the ESV has translated it? I would suggest to you that really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why it was unauthorized. Moses tells us what matters. They approached God in a way that He had not commanded. And that phrase in the context of the surrounding chapters, at the, the, that phrase at the end of verse 1 should jump off the page. In chapters 8 and 9, we read, we read over and over, just as the Lord had commanded, just as the Lord had commanded. But here something is done that He had not commanded. And that's the whole point. In these chapters, particularly chapters 9 and 10, they work together to make this point clear. There is only one way to approach God and live. There is only one way to approach God and live. Chapter 9, a way has been opened for man to approach God. Chapter 10, only one way. There is only one way that God has prescribed. There are not many ways. There is one. And so, rather than fire coming out from God's presence to consume their offering, as in chapter 9, Fire came out to consume them. The scene is sobering. Moses says to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And that means I will be treated as holy. And Moses most likely is referring to the priests. The word for those who are near me is a word that is used for all kinds of things pertaining to the work of the priests, including bringing offerings near. So he's saying, among those who are closest to me, those who have this this great privilege of bringing offerings near, the priests, I will be treated as holy among them. And then he says, and among all the people I will be glorified. The point being, to, to, to approach God any old way that you please is to treat Him as Common. Common is the opposite of holy. It's to treat him with contempt. And so Nadab and Abihu, they are consumed and they die. And that creates a problem that the text really hasn't even, it hasn't even prepared us to appreciate yet. The coming chapters are going to show us that a dead body is the granddaddy of all things that create uncleanness. And now there are two of them. There are two of them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So if you think back to those earlier chapters, chapter 4 specifically, we have the delineation of the sacrifices. We saw sacrifices for unintentional sins there in chapter 4. We saw sacrifices for cleansing the tabernacle. But what do we do here? There are corpses at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Corpses where only holy things are supposed to be. We've got a huge problem here. What do you do now? And what we begin to see is a series of instructions intended to remedy the situation. And that God gives instructions, that God gives a remedy, is a picture of grace. And the first step is, get these bodies out of here. 
take, take them outside the camp. And Moses has non-priests carry these bodies out, which leads to a second step. And that second step is, do not let Aaron and his remaining sons cease to do their priestly duty. And, and, and what we're being reminded of here is the seriousness of the priestly office, the seriousness of approaching God. Aaron and his son, remaining sons, they are not allowed to show any signs of mourning. That's what he means by don't let your hair hang down. Don't tear your clothes. Don't go outside of the tabernacle. Don't do that. If they do, they're going to die and they're going to bring wrath upon the whole congregation. They have priestly work to do. The anointing of God is upon them. That is, they are set apart unto God for that priestly work. That's all they're to be about. Let the people of Israel mourn this burning that has happened. This leads us to another emphasis of this chapter. The priest's role is crucial in the way of life. The priest's role is crucial in the way of life or way to life. So we come to verses 8 through 10 and we find some reported speech here. This reported speech in verses 8 through 10, this is the only place in all of Leviticus where God speaks directly to and only to Aaron. It's very important. And the function of the speech is this. As demonstrated by Nadab and Abihu, sinful humans are liable to make a royal mess of this thing of approaching a holy God. So Aaron, listen very closely to this. Your role as a priest is going to include making sure that this works well in the future and everybody doesn't get killed. That's what verses 8 through 10 is. Aaron, you've got a very serious role going forward. That is, keep everybody alive. And so the Lord gives Aaron three charges. And the first is soberness. Soberness. Look at verse 9, Leviticus 10, 9. Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now some speculate that maybe Nadab and Abihu, maybe they had a little bit too much to drink. And that's what led them to do this very silly thing that they did. Well, there's nothing in the text to indicate that. We have, we have, there's nothing that would, that would say that they were inebriated when they did this. Others suspect that maybe drinking was a sign of mourning. And the Lord is saying, don't mourn by drinking. Well, if that was the case, we would expect that instruction to be included with the other instructions not to mourn up in verse 6. No, this is just a command to have your wits about you as you are doing this most solemn and serious work. Life and death are on the line, not just for you, but for all the people around you. You must be sober as you do the work of a priest. So first, he gives them the charge of soberness. Second, the charge of discernment. Leviticus 10.10 You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. Now those four categories, those are not throwaway categories. These categories mean the, the difference between life and death for a person in Israel. And the priest needs to know, he has to know, what makes a person unclean because it is unsafe for an unclean person even to be in the camp, much less close to the tabernacle. And the priest, the, the priest needs to know what makes a, a holy thing common and what, what, what allows a common thing to become holy because it's unsafe for a common thing to come to the doorway of the tent of meeting. If the priest doesn't know these things, people die. 
the priest may die, as seen in the cases of Nadab and Abihu. Now, here's an interesting point. The rest of the book of Leviticus is structured around these two ideas of distinguishing these categories. If you're taking notes, you might write this down. Chapters 11 through 15 are all about distinguishing between the clean and the unclean. Chapters 11 through 15 is about distinguishing between the clean and the unclean. Chapters 17 through 27, 17 through 27, largely about distinguishing between the holy and the common. I left a chapter out, right? Chapter 16 is right there in the middle. What about chapter 16? Chapter 16 is about the Day of Atonement, which does two things. The Day of Atonement does two things. It most immediately offers a solution to this this problem that has just been created by Nadab and Abihu, this profaning of the the tabernacle, these dead bodies that have brought uncleanness on the tabernacle. What do we do? The Day of Atonement fixes this. Secondarily, in in an ongoing fashion, the Day of Atonement provides a mechanism for dealing with people's inevitable failures to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, and between the holy and the common. So you see what's what's happening for the rest of Leviticus. Here, the Lord tells Aaron, you've got to distinguish between these things, the holy and the unholy, I'm sorry, the holy and the common, and the clean and the unclean. And the rest of the book of Leviticus, the Lord is, is equipping the priests to do just that. He's helping them to make that those, those distinguishing thoughts. So, charge of soberness, a charge of discernment, and third, teaching. He charges them to teach, Leviticus 10, 11. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. It's not just that the priests are to know how to distinguish these things, but additionally, they are there to communicate to the people how to walk in faithfulness to the Lord, how to be holy. As, as everyone is seen very vividly, in the case of Nadab and Abihu, there is one way to approach God. There is one way to abide with God. And here it is in the rest of Leviticus. This is what God is going to be showing, showing Moses and Aaron. They are to teach the people these things. And the rest of the passage Verses, verses 12 and, and following, what we find is Mo- Moses making sure that we get this thing back on track in terms of the priests now doing their duty. He wants to make sure that, that these, these sacrifices that have just been sacrificed in chapter 9, this is all one, one day, one, one situation. He wants to make sure, hey, look, priests, let's get our heads back in the game. You guys eat what you're supposed to eat and eat it in the place where you're supposed to eat it. Do everything just as the Lord had said, because we have to do it by the book. And we find, or Moses finds, he's looking around for where's the goat of the sin offering? And, and he finds that, that there's a problem here. It has been burned up, and it was not supposed to all be burned up. But rather, like the grain offering and like the, the, the appropriate portions of, of the fellowship offering, it was supposed to be eaten in a holy place. And you can understand his frustration, right? I mean, Nadab and Abihu were just incinerated for doing the wrong thing. And so he says to these other two, these, the, the only remaining sons of Aaron, what are you thinking? You didn't, you didn't eat it right. We've got to do everything right. 
You just saw your brothers be consumed. You have to do it right. Now look, look at, look at Aaron's, Aaron's response to this in, in verse 19. Behold, today they've offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things, of these have, as, such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses hears that, he's satisfied. Now here's what I think Aaron is saying. I think Aaron is saying, look, I'm trying to do what the Lord has just told me to do in verses 10 through through 11, I'm sorry, 9 through 11. I'm trying to distinguish between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean. We offered these offerings today. Two people were still consumed. I'm unsure if in light of that, it's appropriate for me to eat this holy food. I'm trying not to offend the Lord. I think that's what Aaron is saying. In other words, he's already doing what the Lord has called him to do, discerning the holy from the common. And that makes sense to Moses. Now, we're in the habit, as we, as we walk through Leviticus, we're in the habit of, of asking ourselves, how, how are these pictures, how are these realities, how, how are these pictures fulfilled in Christ, essentially? The main idea presented in chapters 9 and 10 is that there is one way of approach to God. As we look to the New Testament, we find over and over the New Testament proclaiming loudly and clearly that Jesus Christ is the only way of approach to God. That's the third, that's the third truth in your, in your notes. Jesus Christ is the only way of approach to God. I would invite you to turn with me over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This, this passage was already read for us this morning by Pastor Rick. I'll give you a little bit of context in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're going up to the temple and they encounter a man who's born lame. and He's asking for money. And Peter essentially says, I've got no money, but here's something better. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And that creates a firestorm. It's not so much that they, that they healed this guy, but that... They did it in Jesus' name. And so the same Jews who had killed Jesus, they want to know from these apostles, by what power or by what name did you do this? They want to confirm, did you do this in Jesus' name? Because they are not at all hip on Jesus. They don't care that He was raised from the dead. They know that He was. It doesn't mean anything to them. They are not going to worship Jesus. Now, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There, there is so much to say here. 
Those questioning Peter and John include, if you, if you just scan up a couple of verses, you'll see the names Annas and Caiaphas. If you were to flip, flip backwards a couple of books into the Gospels, you would find those names in the, in the Gospels. Annas is the former high priest. Caiaphas is the current high priest. In other words, these guys are the Aaron's of the day. Unbeknownst to them, by their own hands, the once for all sacrifice for sin has been made on the cross. They crucified Him. God raised Him from the dead. But because they have rejected that sacrifice, because they have rejected the one way, they are lost. Because Peter is explaining to him, to them, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, where, where on earth did Peter here talk like that? And where would he get the boldness to say that kind of thing to the errands of his day? Well, he heard that kind of talk from Jesus. Jesus says that kind of thing. Jesus said in, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the, the one true and living God except through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son. And yes, that kind of talk is offensive. Absolutely it is. I mean, think... Don't you think that Peter's audience in Acts 4 would have found that offensive? Again, scan up a couple of verses in Acts chapter 4 and look at who he's talking to. Not just Caiaphas and Annas, but the rulers are there. The elders, the scribes, the entire high priestly family. They are all there. And he is saying to them, the way to God isn't the way that you think. But the only way to God is through Jesus Christ, whom you hated so badly that you murdered Him. And yet Peter says that with great boldness. The following verses comment on his boldness and on John's boldness. In fact, his listeners were flabbergasted by their boldness. Which leads to a main application for us, something that we must take with us this morning. The disciple-maker's role is one of compassionate boldness. The disciple-maker's role is one of compassionate boldness. We've noted many times that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be disciple-makers. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 reads this way. This is Jesus' words, not just to the eleven, but to all of us who name the name of Christ. Jesus said to us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, as you follow Christ, go and call other people to follow Christ. Part of following Him is calling other people to follow Him. Disciples make disciples. We've also noted repeatedly in this series that the New Testament authors characterize followers of Jesus Christ as a kingdom of priests. So priests in, in, in the New Testament economy is not just a special class of believer, but everyone who follows Christ is a priest. 
all of us are in the business of facilitating the worship of the Most High God through Jesus Christ. We are all in the business of gathering worshipers to Him. And the nature of that mission itself necessitates compassionate boldness. Because Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Absolutely everyone. Everyone has offended God with their rebellious heart and rebellious deeds. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. So everyone has sinned and the penalty for everyone is sin. So you put all of those things together and you find that all people have offended God and all people then in their natural state are doomed to eternal punishment. Now Romans 6.23 continues this way, but the free gift of God is eternal life In Christ Jesus our Lord. So the way to avoid punishment and enjoy life is through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Now compassion for human souls will move one to be bold in spreading that message. Now let's let's take ourselves back in history, back in salvation history, put ourselves in the place of the people of Israel. Let's think that we are in the aftermath of that scenario, Nadab and Abihu, and we understand the wondrous honor and and pleasure of seeing and enjoying the glory of God. Again, we're putting ourselves in their shoes, so so we've seen the glory of God. We know what a wonderful thing that is because of of what took place in chapter 9. We also understand with, with vivid clarity, what happens when someone tries to come another way not prescribed by God? And that's because we've witnessed what happened in chapter 10. What then would we expect of anyone in Israel? How would anyone react if they saw a priest or a common Israelite preparing to approach the front of the tent of meeting with unauthorized fire? How would anyone in Israel react? Having seen what they've seen in chapter 9 and having seen what they've seen in chapter 10, how would they react going forward? Would they just keep it to themselves? Would they say things in their own minds? Well, it's not what I would do. But I'm not going to force my beliefs on someone else. Would they think, I don't really know that person very well, so I haven't really earned the right to speak into their lives. Would they think, I would say something, but I want to make them feel awkward. And if I'm being really honest, I don't want to feel awkward. That sounds really silly, doesn't it? I mean, that is absurd. Those things are absurd. Utterly absurd. What would they do? What would that do? Israelite do. I would, I would suggest to you that they would be yelling, waving their arms, maybe tackling that person. What are you doing? Don't do this. You're going to be consumed because they know what's going to happen to that person. 
They know what's going to happen. Compassion would move them to act. The average modern Western Christian lives in a place of absurdity as it pertains to that very scenario. We just watch people preparing their unauthorized fire and we don't say anything. And if we, we, if we consider, why, why might that be? Maybe there are a couple of suggestions. Maybe there's a couple of explanations why we do that. One explanation may be that maybe we don't really believe there's only one way. We, we may not say that, but, but maybe that's actually what we believe. A, a, a 2022 LifeWay research survey of a thousand self-identified Christians reported that more than 60%, more than 60% had not shared the gospel with anyone in the previous six months. Now, if that's true, what, what might you conclude? Maybe, maybe these self-identified Christians, maybe they just believe that there is more than one way. should know better if, if we're reading the Bible, but, but maybe, maybe we quietly agree with the liberals, disagreeing with Jesus. Maybe we quietly agree with the liberals that all roads do lead to God. That's one explanation. Another explanation, perhaps we're just drunk, spiritually speaking. We're, we are dulled to the reality around us. We, we perhaps are drunk on social media, drunk on career advancement, drunk on our kids' activities, drunk on political current events, on our own bad circumstances. Maybe we're just hammered on everything that isn't eternal. And so it's, it's very easy for us to glaze over the fact that everyone around us is marching with great confidence toward the judgment seat of God with unauthorized fire. We're drunk, and so even though we know, we know what's going to happen, in our inebriation, we're able to preach a laundry list of absurdities to ourselves like, now isn't the time, here isn't the place, I'm not the person to tell that doomed soul what awaits them. It would behoove us to adopt the instructions of Leviticus 10 verses 8 through 10. We should be sober-minded. We should be sober-minded. I say Leviticus 10, 8 through 10. The New Testament is replete with exhortations to spiritual sober-mindedness. While the Bible does condemn being literally drunk, these passages throughout the New Testament speak of soberness in metaphorical terms, spiritual sober-mindedness. That is, having our heads in the game. I'm just going to rattle off a few chapters here and suggest to you that you read these chapters and you'll find in each of these chapters this idea of spiritual sober-mindedness. Romans 12 is one. Romans 12. 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, 
Titus 2, Titus 2, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4, and 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 5. So Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 2, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 5. Each of those contexts call for sober-mindedness in light of two related things. This says to us, be sober-minded because there is ministry to do in light of a coming judgment. There is ministry to do in light of a coming judgment. And as disciple-making New Testament priests, you and I cannot afford to, to, to be into the same things as the culture. Having our heads in the cultural clouds. Wasting our time and minds on strictly temporal things. There is ministry to do ahead of the coming judgment. Our heads have to be in the eternal game. We must be sober. We must be intentionally thinking about the fact that judgment is heading to us very quickly and we are rushing headlong towards it and many of the people around us are approaching it with unauthorized fire. That is, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They've not repented and trusted in Christ. He's the only way to be saved from the wrath to come. They are doomed. And people like us, entrusted with that message, cannot afford to be found silent. Compassion should move us to boldness. We should be sober-minded. Sober-minded. We should also be discerning. We should be discerning. We should know the truth. We should know the truth. People who have followed Christ should be people of the book. That's what, that's what we mean by this idea of being discerning. Constantly growing in the knowledge of the truth for our own spiritual safety and the safety of those around us. We should have our powers of discernment trained by constant practice. You might write down Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, the author of, of the book of Hebrews, he wants to go more deeply into a particular doctrinal error, area, I'm sorry, but he can't. And he explains it this way. He says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You hear that language? You can, hear, you can almost hear that coming from Leviticus. Distinguishing good from evil. Distinguishing the holy from the unholy. The, 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 the unclean from the, the clean. You may know what the, the book of Hebrews is all about. He's trying to prevent people from turning away from Jesus. And, and his message is very similar to what we've seen this morning. Jesus is the only way. And not only is He the only way, He's better than every other way. So don't turn away from Him. And so we, as those who have followed Jesus Christ, we must plumb the Word to know why that is. Why is He the only way? Why is He better? Some, some professing believers today, we know cognitively that Jesus is the only way to God. But as, as we're talking to people about it, we're almost apologetic. Have you ever felt that way? If you're talking to, to someone, maybe, maybe of another faith, maybe somebody who has a Muslim background or 
or a, a Catholic background or whatever. Maybe it's one of these people, it's just kind of an amorphous spiritual thing. And as you get to this thing of the exclusivity of Christ, you're, you almost feel apologetic. I'm sorry, but Jesus is the only way. You, you really don't find that kind of attitude among the New Testament authors. They don't apologize because they are steeped in the word of righteousness. They're skilled in the word of righteousness. And for that reason, they understand that Jesus is gold. There's, there's no apologizing for that. And when we are skilled in the word of righteousness, we don't apologize about the exclusivity of Christ, but rather we herald it because the sorrows of those who chase after another God will multiply. But those who, who find Christ gain Him and all the riches in the heavenly places. The more we know the Word, the more we know Jesus, the more compassionate we'll be and the bolder we'll be. So we must, we must discern the truth. And then thirdly, we must, must, must share it. We must share it. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. Romans 10, 11 through 15. Where the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Compassion will move us to boldly say to those around us, boldly say to those around us, as if we're handing them a gift, there is only one way. Jesus is it. There's a, there's a choice to make. And that, that choice is doom or delight. Surrender to Christ alone in faith. As, we, as we're closing now, I wonder if there is anyone here unsure about that truth yourself. Maybe you've been of the opinion, as so many are, perhaps you've been of the opinion, there are, there are so many religions claiming to be right. Maybe it's silly to think that there's one right answer. Well, think about this. We don't grade math tests that way. The fact that everyone gets a different answer doesn't mean there's not a right one. There's a right one. And it is right whether we believe it or not. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 teaches this. Deep down, you know the truth. You know the truth. And, and any claim of uncertainty about God actually masks what's really going on in the heart, which is an obstinate refusal to worship Him on His terms. 
And, and that is why the Scriptures call us to repent of that, of that rebellious heart. Repent, surrender, and recognize that the, the shed blood of Jesus is the only way that your sins can be cleansed. His righteousness is the only way that you can be made right with God. There is no other way. Trust in Him alone and follow Him. Now, if you have any questions about that, you are sitting in a room full of people who can answer those questions and they would love to. I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards as would any of the elders. Pastor Rick is, is the one who read the Scripture for us this morning. Pastor John led us in the, the Lord's Supper. Pastor Jason was leading us in worship on the drums. Any of us would love to talk to you or talk to anyone else that you're comfortable with. But don't leave here with unanswered questions. There is one way to approach God and live. And it's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your compassion toward us and how that compassion is expressed through the clarity of your word. We, we see, Lord, that it is reality that you have chosen to save us exclusively through your Son. We thank you for having compassion on us by telling us that, telling us that over and over telling us that very clearly. And we thank you, of course, for your compassion expressed in the, the act of giving us your Son. We pray for those, Father, who may be struggling with the notion of following Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would grant them to feel the weight of their sins, feel their hopelessness outside of Christ. We pray, Lord, that, that they would see that He is their only hope that they would repent and trust in Him this morning. The rest of us, Father, please grant us to walk out of here this morning with the appropriate perspective that is, that is brought to bear by this passage in Leviticus 10. I pray, Father, that we would see all of those around us as, as either those walking towards eternity, holding on to Christ, or those walking into eternity holding on to unauthorized fire. Lord, please give us hearts of compassion for those who don't know Jesus. Help us to celebrate the fact that we know the truth. And grant us boldness, Father, to tell that truth to those who need pray these things in Jesus' name.